Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. We begin a new chapter in our study of the book of Matthew. And Lord willing, I, again, my plan, obviously the Lord's ways are not our ways. We've learned that this morning. Uh, I think that we'll probably have three messages uh, coming out of this chapter over the next few weeks. Uh, and I'm taking a large section this morning uh, because I felt like the last five verses, verses 9 through 13, need to go ahead while we're in the flow of this. So um, there's going to be a lot, okay? I'm going to warn you, there's a lot in this text. And I'm going to try to speak as fast but as clearly and try to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, what He would have us to say, uh, being, being an awareness of the whole morning this morning. Uh, let's begin right here. You ready? It's been a couple of weeks. Uh, not sure where Mike is sitting. Mike Sturgill, is he in here? Uh, yeah, sitting in the back. Uh, got kicked to the back, apparently. Uh, thank you so much for preaching. I uh, heard a lot of good comments on last week's message out of James. Uh, and the Lord used that in my life. Um, so it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Matthew. So let's do a quick recap. You ready? Here we go. And back in chapter 16, Jesus and his disciples are up in Caesarea Philippi. They're in the farthest point north of Palestine. He asked them, who do people say that I am? He's now months from the cross. Who do people say? What's the word on the street? Some think you're Elijah. Some think you're Jeremiah. Some think you're another one of the prophets. And they went through all of those. Um, some think you're the prophet that is to come. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter answers. This is an important point. You, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus acknowledges that and says, Blessed are you, Simon, or Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed that, but God the Father revealed that. And then if you remember, in chapter 16, verse 20, Jesus gave a very strange command. He says, Don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. But even more strange than that is when he then begins to share with them that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and rise again the third day. I made a contention. This is my suspicion based off of Peter's immediate response to what Jesus said. I don't even know that they heard the fourth thing that Jesus said he must do. This was Easter, by the way. It just fell perfectly in line for us to preach on this on Easter. Jesus says, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. He acknowledges he is, but don't tell anyone. But I must, four things, go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders and scribes and chief priests, and he must be killed. I don't know that they ever heard the, the fourth thing because they probably were so thrown by that. And then Peter jumps in and says, God forbid, never let it be. God will not let these things happen that you just said. But Jesus says on the third day that he must rise again from the dead. And then after that, he moves to a larger group of people, and he tells them, by the way, if you're going to follow me, because a lot of people were thinking, I'm going to follow Jesus. He's heading to Jerusalem to die, and he says, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself. So here's your personal interest. You have to separate yourself from, from your interest, and you must take up your cross. We took that literally two weeks ago. How do you read that, take up the cross? Not only does it mean to die to my self-will, it literally means I should expect and not be shocked if I have to die in the cause of Christ. He's heading to death. They're not going to go die for their sins, but be expecting to die. And literally 10 out of the 12 died for the cause of Christ. Of course, Judas betrays the Lord, and then John, they try to kill him, but he ends up being exiled to an, to an island where he receives the book of Revelation. At the end of that, so we're almost ready to read our text, 
At the end of that, having just talked about like literal death, the Lord says, I'm reading chapter 16, verse 28, the last verse before 17. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his, in his kingdom. The idea coming with power in his kingdom. We don't know 100% what that was talking about, but I finished two weeks ago by saying, I think that is a lead-in to chapter 17. Here we go. You ready? Let's read our text. Having just said, by the way, some of you, now they're going to die. You're going to die, but you'll not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Matthew and Mark and Luke all write about that scenario, and all three of them give a time frame. And here's what's so unusual. Matthew doesn't do this. He hasn't been doing this much later and then this many days later, but this time he does. And that's why we kind of think, is this the connection back to verse 28 in the previous chapter? So with that in mind, Matthew writes the following. And after six days, so we had the whole, who do men, who do men say that I am? Who do you say them? You're the Christ. Don't tell anyone. I'm heading to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must be killed. I must rise again on the third day. You, if you're going to follow me, must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. Verse 17, chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, John's, James' brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Let me pause. We don't know where the Mount of Transfiguration. If anybody ever put you may see it on a map. I've seen it on a map. There's the Mount of Transfiguration. We don't know where it was. None of the gospel accounts say. Generally, two places are proposed. Some would say, oh, they were up at Caesarea Philippi, 14 miles away is Mount Hermon. That's a high mountain, 9,200 feet. The only thing is when they come down from this episode, there's some scribes that are waiting, and we don't know why would scribes be that far north. At this time, when Jesus has separated himself, apparently for weeks and months, why would that be, they be that far north? Others say, oh, no, no, it's Mount Tabor. Six days, they were on the move. They're back down in Galilee. Possibly, let me throw out two things about Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is not 9,200 feet. It's only 1,900 feet. That could qualify as a high mountain in some places. Uh, the Musgraves are from Colorado. <laughs> uh, they would call our highest mountain around here, which is what, Sassafras Mountain, like 5,500 feet. That's a nice little hill to those that live in. Um, so I'm from North Carolina. The highest mountain up there is Mount Mitchell, 8,000-some feet. They would still call that. That's, that's a nice little attempt at a mountain. When you're out in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, I've never been there. I need to come visit. You've invited me many times. Uh, we need to actually take you up on that. I need to see those. They say they're so majestic. Uh, but So... Now, Mount Tabor, 1,900 feet, Qua possibly could qualify as a high mountain, yet here's the kicker. There was a fortress on top of it at that time and a castle, so don't know that it was Mount Tabor. There was another option that's been offered, and it's not real popular, but it's probably the one. There was one between those two called Mount Marin, and it was about 4,000 feet. And that's between way up north and down in Galilee, and so it's possible that that's where, but we don't know. Keep moving. Verse 2. So he takes these three up onto the mountain by themselves. They're getting away from all the chaos of life. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. I'll add here that Luke tells us that the disciples, so this may be a hint that it was at nighttime, the disciples were heavy with sleep. I don't know if it means they were literally asleep or they're just sitting there literally fighting sleep. We also know from Luke that they went up on the mountain. The Lord's purpose was to go pray, and he's praying. They're fighting sleep. In that scene, verse 2 again, 
He was transfigured before them. Whether his transfiguration is what wakes them up or if they're kind of dozing and nodding off and they see this starting to happen, nevertheless, verse 2, he was transfigured before them and his face shone. His face shone, shone, shone like what? Like the sun. His face shone like the sun. We take this literally. And his clothes became white as light. So here they are on this mountain. They're praying. They start well. Jesus keeps going. Jesus is praying. Literally, he is being transfigured in their midst. They're waking up. They're seeing this in verse 3. And behold, the word behold there means now look now. This is something happened so suddenly like out of nowhere there appeared to them. So they see them. And I will go ahead and tell you, they know who these two men are. I don't know how Peter, James, and John know that it's Moses and Elijah, but they do know who it is. Verse 3, behold, there appeared to them, again, behold, sudden, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So those three are talking. Apparently, Peter, James, and John are viewing this take place. I don't know if they know what they're talking about. We do know what they're talking about from Luke. We'll mention that in a minute. Verse 4, so they wake up. Jesus is transfigured. Lo and behold, there's Moses and Elijah This is an amazing scene, and as he does so often, verse 4, and Peter said, here comes Peter, I need to talk, verse 4, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here, and good there doesn't just mean this is such a blessing, what a privilege, thank you for letting us come, it means that, like this is so great, it's good, but it means more than that, it means This is good that we're here because we can be useful. He's going to make a proposal. Verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tenths here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You picture it? Lord, this is so good for us to be here. If you wish, you say the word, I'll build a tent for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Okay, what quality is Peter exhibiting? He has great zeal. Great zeal. He always does. Verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. He's still speaking. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, we know who this voice is, this is my beloved son, Peter speaking, the cloud comes and appears, and they're in it, and then the voice comes, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. There's so many ways. I, I, I don't know how the Lord's inflection is there. Is it literally this? Listen to him. Hear it again. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. I can do one for you, one for you, one for you. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Maybe that's what he's saying. Listen to him. Listen to him. I'm well pleased with him. Verse 6, when the disciples, Peter, James, and John, heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Terrified means extremely afraid, like extremely afraid. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only, apparently Jesus looks like he did in the normal life at this point, and it's just the four of them again. So this is like the next day. I don't know how long it took to get up this mountain. Depends how high 
We take things literally. There's a journey up, getting winded, got to stop, take a quick break, keep moving. They pray, fall asleep. Jesus is praying. He's transfigured. There's an appearance. Peter makes his suggestion, this cloud, the voice of God. Then the next day they're coming back down, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, hear this command, here it is again, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Hey, hey, what happened up there? That stays between us. Until this time, it's not onward. There's a qualification. Until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, and I think the word then is key. The disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that that first Elijah must come? Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, this is very tricky. Jesus says, Elijah does come. Does come means he will come. Some translations even put it that way. Jesus says, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they, I'll go ahead and tell you that they, because they are there. There's going to be three times in this verse. They and there represents Israel's religious leaders, Israel's political leaders. Here, verse 12 again. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Are they right when they say that Elijah has to come first before you set up your kingdom? Elijah does come first, but Elijah has already come, and they did this to him, and they're going to do this to me. Then they realize, oh, he's talking about John the Baptist. Go back, if you would, verse number one. I just want to point out one thing in verse number one. Look at it again. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Um, how did that happen? I want you to think about that. How did that happen? Was this simply a matter of the 12 are there and the Lord Jesus, and all of a sudden, hey, where's Jesus? Hey, where are the other three guys? And a couple days later, they come back. Is it that simple? They just slipped away. Or did it happen like this? Think now. Are they all together, and the Lord says, Peter, James, and John? Or is it one night, like, all right, tomorrow, Peter, James, John, you'll be going with me. Put yourself in that scene. Just go there. I'm not going to spend long here. Put yourself in that scene. If you're there and you're one of the other guys, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? Every time we have lists of the apostles in the New Testament, Peter's always listed four, but the next three guys are always the same three guys under him for a total of four. It's always Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Andrew is Peter's brother, and James and John's brother. You've got two sets of brothers. I wonder, as the Lord's pointing this out, if it was as simple as Peter, James, John, come with me, and guys, we'll be back in a little while. I wonder if Andrew almost gets ready to get up and like, no, no, not you. You're not going. Okay, Jeff, what is your point? I promise you guys, I don't look for these things, but I do notice them when I see them. I want you to write this down. 
This is not the first time these three guys have been separated by the Lord. You remember when he goes into Jairus' house and Jairus' daughter has died? Jesus is going to go in and raise her to life. He takes Peter, James, and John. The other nine are on the outside. Here he takes them up on the high mountain. They're going to receive a special blessing. They're going to see things the others did not. This is not also the last time. Later on in the book, Jesus is going to take the group, minus Judas, into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. But he's going to ask Peter, James, and John to go further in the prayer with him. So why does this keep happening? Because it's the Lord's will. I'm telling you, I don't look for it, but I do notice it. Write this note down. Whether we like it or not, it is God's prerogative to bestow his blessings and honors and privileges on whomsoever he wills to give it to. It is always God's sovereign prerogative to bestow blessing. This is a clear blessing. This is an obvious honor. What a privilege to get to see this. The others don't get to see this. One of the things that stood out to me is as Matthew is writing this some 30-some years later, I don't sense a hint of jealousy or bitterness on the part of Matthew as he's writing this. We say, Jeff, I know the reason why he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's not going to let him write that with bitterness and jealousy in his heart. I also believe that as Matthew's writing, there's no bitterness or jealousy because he realizes, get this, it's only by the grace of God that he's even one of the 12. Yes, they get some more privileges than I do, but I'm one of the 12. You may be sitting here this morning and say, well, Jeff, we're not one of the 12. True, but you are a Christian if you've put your faith in Christ. Think about that. I don't have what they have, and they maybe have some opportunities and privileges, but I, I get this life. I am a Christian. You say, well, I'm not yet a Christian. Hear me. Even if you're not yet a Christian, then what we just said in the opening, you are not one of the three billion people who are going to live, be born, live, and die without ever hearing the gospel. At least you get to hear the gospel. You have access to the gospel. And so you are privileged. I'm going to move on from this, but I want to say it this way. Each one of us are called to run our own race. Here's the facts. Here's the facts. I'm comfortable in saying this because I know most of us. There are people around the world who have more spiritual gifting than any of us. And there are people around the world who have less spiritual gifting than any of you. There are people who have more resources. There are people who have better health, better genetics is the way we gauge that. Let's just call it like it is. They have better health and they have better um, genetics. And over here, this one has better connections and what the world calls. Boy, they just caught a break. Those people caught a break, and now look at all that they have. This one, if they caught that break, they would, look, here's my point. God has called us to run our specific race. So I believe what our point is, be content with the gifting and the resources and the privileges and the blessings that God has put in your life. What opportunities he puts before you, you're going to give an account for those, not other people. And so be content and be faithful. Whatever gifting the Lord has, do the most with that gifting. Do the most with those opportunities. Verse 2. Let's really get into this first point. By the way, I forgot to give you point number one. A glimpse of Jesus' glory. Did we already? Uh, going back there. Did y'all get the second, the first note? Good. Thank you, for, uh, thank you, Rachel, for making up for my lack there. We're getting a glimpse of Jesus' glory. And I'm going to call it a glimpse. Verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. They probably thought they've seen it all, right? We've seen it all now. 
We've heard him calm storms. We've seen him cast out demons. He touches people. Every physical need is met. Uh, He's taken food and just created food to feed thousands of people. People come up and touch him, and they're healed. He says a word, and people that aren't even there are healed. He talks to dead bodies. They come back to life. We've we've seen it all. Oh, no, you haven't seen it all because now they're going to see this. Transfigured. So here's where I'm frustrated, guys. This is frustrating me. I like narrative stories, and I like narratives because I usually have time during the week. I can put myself in the story, really try to envision what's happening, and then hopefully I can come in here and use words to try to help you see what's in my mind. I can't do that this week. And none of the people that I read even attempted beyond the text to try to describe If there was a camera set on a tripod that was watching this, then what would they have seen? Tell us, Jeff. I'll tell you what they would have seen. They would have seen Jesus transfigured and his face shone like the sun and his clothes emanating light. Yeah, okay. Like, break it down. What does that really mean? I don't know. I literally don't know. And I can't go beyond. So let's let's stick to just a couple of words. And I'm sorry to disappoint you. I really am. You go home, and if it really, the Lord just opens that up to you, and you write your thoughts down really quick and send it to me because I'd love to to get a a better picture of what happened here. The word transfigured apparently is a hard word. Get this. It comes from the word that we get our word metamorphosis. I say metamorphosis. What insect do you think of? Butterfly that was first a caterpillar. So a caterpillar makes a cocoon, goes in the cocoon, comes out a butterfly. If you're taking notes, write this down. The word transfigured that we get our word metamorphosis from, so this is what happens here, means a change of the external. Pay attention. It's a change of the external to match the internal. It's a change. What what in the world happened here? Well, here's what we do know based on the word. He was transfigured before them. There was a change of the external that took place so that the external matched the internal. What does that tell me? That means the internal hasn't changed. We could say it this way. The external is now taking a semblance and appearance that more readily matches the internal. Again, the internal has not changed. What went into that cocoon was a caterpillar, and what comes out is a butterfly, but literally it's the same insect. It just has a different external appearance. I found one man that helped me at least make sense of it. I'm going to propose it. I wouldn't die for this. I'm going to throw it out to you guys. R.T. France writes the following. He writes, quote, The visual transformation is not so much a physical alteration as an added dimension of glory. We read that again. What happened? The visual transformation, he's offering, again, could be wrong, but this resonated with me. The visual visual transformation is not so much a physical alteration as an added dimension of glory. It is the same Jesus, but now with an awesome brightness like the sun. Jeff, what's what's your point? Why did you have this? I don't think the Lord looked like a different person. I don't think as they looked at the Lord, it's like, who is that? I don't think his head took a different shape, and he started looking like some angelic being. I think as they look, they're like, that's still Jesus. That's still Jesus' face, still Jesus' body. That's still him, but this is now a more glorified version of that because now we have the insight. The Lord is literally just giving a quick peek of what he has been all along, literally all throughout 
eternity. Eternity past and eternity future. We know that God is unapproachable light and Jesus is light and he's giving them just a peek of that light. Notice how they, it's the best they have. We have a simile. This past Wednesday night we were studying about similes and metaphors and different things like that. And how, how do we interpret that when we come across them in the Bible? Notice verse 2 gives us a simile. He was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. As like Right, Jeff, uh, that's that figurative language we were talking about Wednesday night. We don't want to put too much weight. Oh, no, 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 listen. This is to be taken. Literally, his face shone like the sun. I don't have words. Listen, I don't have words to tell you what it was like. If you want to kind of know a bit what it was like, you need to go out today after the service and get you a good... No, do not do this. Do not do this. You say, I want to know what was it like. It would be like staring into the sun. But I'm going to go further than that because remember in in Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus is on the road to Damascus. He sees this same Jesus except in his glorified body, his post-resurrection body. Saul of Tarsus sees Jesus. It throws him to the ground. He is blinded. And in his own words in chapter 22 and 26 of Acts, he says that Christ was brighter than the noonday sun. Jeff, I still don't know that I would take this. I think this is quite a bit of exaggeration of the brightness and the shining of the Lord's face. No, the new Jerusalem that is coming. Remember, there's this world, this earth, this heavens. It's all going to pass away. The Lord's going to recreate a new earth and a new heavens. There's going to be a new Jerusalem. And it has no external artificial light source because God is the light source. But specifically, the book of Revelation says that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is its light. In fact, we will be shining forth through the ages, not because we are our own light, but because we are reflecting His light. He's the light. We don't need any light in the new Jerusalem. We're going to see all these wonderful things because he's the light. He gave a peek of that this time. His face is shining, but he's not the only one in the Bible. I'm not having you turn there. Do you all remember who else's face was shining in the Bible? Moses. Stephen has a glow uh, that's coming up later. Moses' face shine. Remember the scene? I mean, I'm going to go quick. Watch. Moses is representing God. I want to know more about you. If I'm going to represent you and I'm going to lead this people, and we're going to be your people, I need to know more about you. So he wants to see God. And God takes him while he's up on the mountain, and God kind of grants his favor request. But catch, there's three protections. Do you remember the three protections? Number one, I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock, so you're going to be shielded by a rock. Number two, God's going to put his hand over, over him. And what was the third protection? He would turn, and, and Moses would only be able to see his back. And as he goes by, now, we had a word on Wednesday night. We're talking about how to interpret and how to study the Bible. There was a word called anthropomorphisms. And an anthropomorphism is where the Bible uses language about God that gives him human characteristics that are merely for our sake. So watch, of these three things, yes, he's in the cleft of a rock. I don't know what the Bible means that God put his hand over Moses because God does not have a real hand. God does not have a body. He said, sure he does. He looks like Santa Claus. No, you need to get rid of that that crazy American worldly image, right? He doesn't have an actual hand, and he doesn't have an actual back part of his body. So I don't know what that means. Apparently, it just means I'm going to put you in a cleft of a rock, and I'm going to throw a veil over you, and I'm only going to let you see a veiled hinder part of me. But here's my point in it all. Moses comes down off the mountain, and his face is shining so much that when the people see him, they're they're terrified. They're terrified of his face. It doesn't mean, man, you've got the worst sunburn I've ever seen in my life. That's not what I mean. Moses' face is shining. 
but not like Jesus. Matthew 17, verse 2, is not like Moses. Write this down. Why? Because Moses' face is merely reflecting the glory of God. What happens in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, Jesus momentarily unveils his true nature as the eternal Son of God, as the glory of God. I'll not turn there. I have it marked, but for time's sake, Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 3, says that the Son of God is literally the radiance of God. You understand there's a difference between reflecting light, light is over here, hits and reflects out, and then there is light that is radiating. The Lord Jesus is radiating light. This was so impactful. And I'm sorry, I, I, I do such a poor job this morning of trying to deal with this text. I, I wish I could help you more. I was frustrated this week. We would have had to be there on the mountain, but we weren't. We're not. But one day you will. One day we'll see the Lord. This was so impactful. Watch what John writes. He finally gets to write a book of the Bible. Probably 40 to 50 years later, John chapter 1, look at verse 14. A familiar verse, but John has not got over it over 50 years later. Watch. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh. We know that the Word was with God and the Word was God. The eternal Word of God became flesh. John's just writing his theology, and I don't have time to go in at all. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you have your Bible open, you want to flip back. First or Second Peter chapter, Second Peter chapter 1. Listen to what Peter, some 30 Probably 35 years later, again, three and a half decades later, Peter has still not gotten over this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 16, Peter writes the following. He's up on the mountain. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's saying, hey, listen, people that I'm writing to, I didn't get duped. It's not like a really smart person who came up with a good theology plan and, and I got sucked into it. No, I didn't. I'm not declaring a myth to you. Verse continues. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Eyewitnesses. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We were there. I'm an eyewitness. I'm an ear witness. I saw his majesty, and I've never gotten over it. Yes, Peter, why do you think Jesus, that man, is the Christ? Because I saw something on the mountain. And then in chapter 1, at the end, when I go into it, he gives a greater reason, not only this experience with Christ, but his greater reason why he knows Jesus is the Christ is the Word of God has clarified that Jesus is the Christ. Back to verse 3, quickly. By the way, we are obviously spending more of our time in the first point. Look at verse 3. Matthew 17, behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. It seems they're dozing off and they wake up and maybe the light of Christ wakes them up and out of nowhere there appears Moses and Elijah. I said a while ago, we don't, we don't know from Matthew what they were saying and I don't know if Peter, James, and John know what they're talking about. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But Luke helps us. Luke says that Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about his departure that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They're months away. They're talking about his departure. The word departure there in Luke is unique because it means exodus. Pay attention. Watch. 
Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah about his soon coming departure, which means exodus. Here's this man, Moses, who led an exodus of the children of Israel out of physical, actual slavery to Egypt, led one or two million Israelites out of Egypt, leaving slavery behind, talking to the Lord Jesus about his upcoming departure, his upcoming exodus, which would be dying on the cross and then resurrecting from the dead and then being ascended. And so all that together would be Jesus's death, departure, exodus. But Jesus doesn't just exit by himself like Moses' exodus led out millions in the same way, in a far greater way, Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension is going to lead all people who were ever put their faith in him, not out of physical, earthly bondage, but bondage to sin, slavery. We're born slaves to sin. We can't help it. But when you put your faith and trust in Christ, his death has led us out of slavery, his departure. And that's what they're talking about. It's led them to victory. It's led them at a departure from the very penalty of sin and obviously the slavery of sin. If you're taking notes, write this down. Why Moses? Why Elijah? Boy, I hate to say this. You guys know that this is not my comfort zone. I would not die for this next note, right? But the evidence indicates, the evidence leads us to think, why Moses? Why, Elijah, would you write this down? Moses here represents the Old Testament law. That seems fairly clear to those who, and I think if you were to read that, like, okay, why Moses? Moses here represents the Old Testament law, and Elijah seems to represent the Old Testament prophets, even though he was not a writing prophet. He is like the most revered of the prophets, and so he represents the prophets. Moses represents the law. And so they're talking to the Lord about his upcoming departure. They're not informing Jesus, hey, here's what you need to expect. He's the eternal son of God. He's in on the plan. He's carrying out the plan. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe what they're doing is encouraging him in what's coming. In what way? Write this down. Their presence conveyed the truth that Jesus' upcoming death would soon be the perfect fulfillment of both the law's demands and the Old Testament prophecies. Could it be that they're saying, what you're about to do is going to fulfill all of the typology of all the lambs and goats and rams that have ever been slain. What you're going to do on the cross is going to fulfill all of that. Where the law demands death for sin, you're taking the world's sin and you're paying for the world's death. And Elijah representing all of the prophecies that have said who will be dying and where you will be dying and who will be causing the death and how you will be dying, who you'll be dying with and where you will be buried, all of those things. You're getting ready to fulfill that, and they are encouraging him in it. Lastly, on our first point, notice verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I'm going to skip some of my thoughts and jump right to this. I don't know fully what Peter's intention of building these tents. One of the gospel writers says that as Moses and Elijah were departing, so maybe this was Peter. Hey, don't leave. Hey, I'll build a tent for him. And you and you and we can all just hang out up here forever. This would be great. We'll just stay here. Don't leave. Stay. Maybe that's what it is. 
But why does he talk? This is we don't have to wonder. This is an important verse. I probably should have put it on the screen. So just listen to Mark 9, 6. Listen to it. Mark 9, 6 tells us why Peter spoke. Get ready. I'm going to tell you. Mark 9, here it is. Quote, for he did not know what to say. Hey, man, are you really going to build a tent if he says, I'm ready to do it? Yeah, why did you say that? Because I don't know what else to say. I think Mark or Luke, one of the other, says, not knowing what he says. But Mark 9, 6 says, for he did not know what to say. Hey, y'all help me out. When you don't know what to say, what should you do? Just don't say anything. Mike's message last week in James 1 uh, hit home with me, and I heard from a few other folks. It's been hitting me several times, so thanks. Thanks for wrecking my week multiple times with last week's text, verses 19 and 20. We talk too much. I talk too much. But you want to know the crazy thing? Sometimes I talk too little. In some settings, I don't talk enough. And in other settings, I talk too much. Literally, I could tell you, I won't, to a shame. I could tell you scenarios where this week I didn't talk enough. And I can tell you other scenarios. I confessed to the group on Wednesday night. Uh, there was a couple of, I will just tell you, I, I talked too much in our meeting. It wasn't contentious. I was just talking too much. I talked too much uh, standing in outside of Brandon's hallway this week. I sh just said too much. should have just listened more. And the Lord is showing me that. Here's the point. What Peter saw was so great and so good, he's just got to do something. I just need to do something. I just want to do something. This is great. You say the word, I'm making an offer. I want to do something. Hey, zeal is great. And the 40-some of us that were here Friday night, you probably walked away like me thinking, we've got to do something. We need to do, we got to change, and we got to start, and we need to go. Now, hear me. I used to coach basketball for a long, long time. Of the two, if I were to have an overly zealous person or an overly apathetic and complacent person, give me the overly zealous person. I'd rather dial somebody back then than try to stoke the fire under somebody that has talent and they just won't do anything. So I'd rather be this kind of Christian than this kind of Christian. But listen, I don't want to be either one of those. I don't want to be either one of those. Peter's ready to do something, but ill-advised half-baked, misplaced zeal will cause us to say and do things that are actually foolish. One commentator writes the following. So, Jeff, you think Peter shouldn't have said, yeah, not knowing what he said. He shouldn't have said what, and I think verse 5 gives clarity to that. One commentator writes the following. Listen to it. He says, Peter was always the man for action. Peter was always the man who must be doing something. The whole message for somebody may be on these next few lines. Peter was always the man who must be doing something, but there is a time for stillness. There is a time for contemplation, for wonder, for adoration, for awed reverence in the presence of the supreme glory. God's word says, be still and know that I am God. Can I propose to you, if there's ever been a time for stillness and contemplation and wonder and adoration and awed reverence, this was the time. But Peter's ready to talk, and he's ready to take action. The commentator continues, it may be that sometimes we are too busy trying to do something when we would be better to be silent, to be listening, to be wondering, 
to be adoring in the presence of God. In other words, less of the frazzled Martha and more of the adoring Mary. But i got to counter all of that. I've got to balance it. Multiple times in today's message, the point is balance. Peter jumped the gun. Peter made an offer. He's zealous, wants to do something. He would be better just contemplating, adoring, worshiping, meditating, soaking it in. How many Christians are balanced when it comes to that? I don't know how many. I dare say that those who are balanced in private stillness, let me hit these words again, contemplation and wonder and adoration and reverence and silence and listening. How many of those are like that and how many are out like, no, we got to do something and they're doing great things for the Lord? I wonder how many who are actually doing great things for the Lord, if they're totally honest, they're like, yeah, often I forsake my private time with the Lord. And I wonder how many folks who are heavy, I mean, honestly, like they have this testimony, man, they really pray and they have this deep relationship with God, but when you look at their life, they don't do anything. I want both of those, and I'm a long way from it. But here's what I've determined. I think this is what the text is teaching us. Both need to be in place. You don't just stop at the prayer closet and in the meditative time and the deep relationship with the Lord. It needs to go somewhere, but that does come first. That's first. Can I say it this way? This relationship, contemplating, adoring the Lord, just spending quiet time and still with the Lord, that should fuel. Then we get up from that, and that fuels the going and using our zeal and zealously going and obeying the Word of God and making a difference. This one first, but it must lead to that. And then it returns to this, and then it goes and does that. And that's the Christian life. And the Christian life is the struggle of trying to keep that balance. Number two, verse 5 through 8. There's a declaration by Jesus' Father. There's a declaration by Jesus' Father. Verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a cloud, a bright cloud, overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. A bright cloud. What's this cloud remind you of? Can I throw the word Shekinah? This appears to be the glory cloud of God. Remember, God doesn't have a body. That's why they only hear a voice. They see a bright cloud. Is this the same cloud that enveloped Moses on Mount Sinai? Is this the same cloud that leads the children of Israel through the wilderness? Apparently, this would be the same cloud that comes into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, above the Ark of the Covenant, between the cherubim, and there it abides. And you dare not go behind that curtain because that's where the abiding place of God. If that is the case, they're in the very presence of God Almighty, which we know that they are, and the only reason they're not consumed is because they're with Jesus. They're with Jesus in the very presence of the Lord. But our text says, while Peter was still speaking... now. Give me just a few seconds. There's something else the Lord's been showing me. Again, it goes back to kind of the James 1 passage. What do we call it when this person's speaking, and before they finish, this person starts speaking, this person has what? Interrupted this person. I interrupt people too much when, I, when I'm talking with them. And the Lord will show me that more and more lately, like you just interrupted them. <sighs> I'll not embarrass them. There's someone here this morning. One of the things that I admire about them is they, I, I, I hardly ever see them interrupt. 
I see them frustrated when others interrupt, and I just see them. They just don't do it. Can I encourage you? You may know who I'm talking. You, 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 you might be sitting there saying, nah, is he? If it's, it's a man. Keep, keep, so I just narrowed it down. Keep being that way. Keep being an example to us because others of us interrupt. Some interrupt more than I do. It's frustrating. Watch. When we interrupt somebody, what are we saying? What I'm saying is more important than what you're saying. It may or may not be. You mark it down, though. When God interrupts, what God's saying is more important than what you're saying. That's, that's real clear. So Peter's making this great offer. Seems like a wonderful proposal. Got a suggestion. How about a bit one for you and one for you and one for you? Any takers? He doesn't even finish. Look at verse 4. I mean, look at verse 5. He was still speaking, and here comes this cloud, and God starts talking. If you're taking notes, write this down. God's interruption of Peter in verse 5 to me seems to strongly suggest, you, hey, how come Jesus never answered Peter's offer in verse 4. Jesus doesn't have to answer Peter's offer because God the Father answers Peter's offer. Here's your answer. He interrupts him because he strongly indicates that God does not want his son put in a category with who? Moses and Elijah? Or God doesn't want his son put in a category with anyone ever else. Don't put my son in a category. I've got this great idea. I'm going to build a tent for Jesus, one for Moses. There's Moses. Are you believe there's Moses right there? It's Elijah. This is great. Don't ever put my son in a category with other people. J.C. Ryle words it this way. Moses was a faithful servant of God. We're not taking away from that. Moses was a faithful servant of God, and Elijah was a bold witness for the truth, but Christ was far above either one or the other. Ryle later on writes the following. Listen, this is important. At their very best, the best of men are only men. At their very best, the best of men are only men. Say it one more time. At their very best, the best of men are only men. What? Who are we talking about? Take the best. You have humanity. Take the best men and women. I mean, the best men and women. Set them aside. We're going to study them not at their eh moments, not at their poor moments, not at their worst moments. We've got the best men and women, and we're getting them at their best. Yeah, they're still just men and women. Still just men and women. Can I give you all my opinion? I think on this mountain they don't even realize it, and I think this could be defended. Jesus is in his own category. I think Peter, James, and John would probably at this time look at Elijah and Moses and say, whoa, that's Elijah and Moses. They're in a whole other category. I think a good argument could be made when it's all said and done, actually where we're at right now moving forward. Peter, James, and John don't take a back seat to Elijah and Moses. I know that when we get to the millennial kingdom, Peter, James, and John are occupying 12 seats, 12 ruling seats of authority over the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't know that that's said of Moses and Elijah. They don't know it, but they don't rank below them. But by the time it's all said and done, Peter's going to learn a major lesson. He's going to have to relearn it again next chapter. You remember, he has to learn stuff slowly. But by the time he gets to Acts chapter 3, this is amazing. I wish we had time to track it down. Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. John's filled with the Holy Spirit. The Lord's gone back to heaven. He's given the great commission. Peter and John are walking into the temple. There's a lame man. He's 40-some years old. He's never walked a day in his life. He's there every day raising money, trying to get money, uh, charity given to him. 
Peter and John say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give thee. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the lame man rise up and walk. And he's jumping around, leaping and praising God. And everyone knows who that is. And they start looking at Peter and John. And Peter says, stop looking at us as though we, by our own goodness or power, raised this man. He says, it's by the name of Jesus. Acts chapter, that's chapter 3. Acts chapter 10, Jesus comes, or Peter comes to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius, when Peter gets there, you're Peter. I've been told by an angel to send for you. You're finally at my house. Cornelius falls down and starts worshiping Peter. Peter literally grabs him and says, stand up. I too am a man. Don't do that. Go forward to chapter 14. It's Paul, I, my personal favorite outside of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. Paul and Barnabas, they too heal a lame man. And the city of Lystra, start, they're ready to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas run in among them and say, stop. We are of men with a nature just like yours. We're just men. Paul has to write to the Corinthians. You want to know why you have so much division? You want to know what part of your problem is, Corinthians? Here it is. You have a wrong view of Apollos, you have a wrong view of Peter, and you have a wrong view of me. We're just servants. Stop putting us on these pedestals. Listen to me. Give honor to whom honor is due. Give honor to whom honor is due. And when someone is following the Lord, you follow those who are following the Lord. But you keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus. Don't ever put your eyes on people. I heard a great preacher speaker Friday night, one of, one of my favorites, but... I don't worship him. I never will. He's just a man. At his very best, he's just a man. And he has a lot of flaws, and I don't agree with everything that he teaches and preaches. But he helps me a lot. I'm saying this because I've seen this over and over. People get enamored by impressive people, and they start putting them on a pedestal. Don't ever let that be part of your life. Only the Lord Jesus deserves to be put on a pedestal. And the Lord's demanding that. I'm supposed to preach this next point. Just write it quickly. Here we go. God the Father gives three declarations. You're going to have to write quickly. Number one, Jesus of Nazareth is God's son with God's nature. He's God's son with God's nature. Jesus of Nazareth is a man. But he has the exact nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. God has a son. Hey, would you raise your hand real quick? If you have a biological son, would you raise your hand? Your son has a nature like yours. God has one son, and he is God the Son. Number two, we know from God's declaration that God the Father loves Jesus, and God the Father is always pleased with Jesus. He's always pleased with Jesus. Jesus never sins. Before I put my faith in the Lord Jesus, I never pleased God the Father. Now that I'm saved and I'm wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, now I too please the Father only because of being wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. But Jesus always pleases the Father. And then number three, the big takeaway, I think, in this context is not just that Jesus is his son, validating what had been said six days earlier, but God the Father demands all people to listen to Jesus. God the Father demands all people to listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Carson writes the following. At a conference I was at last week, I was able to learn that Don Carson and D.A. Carson are the same person. And I was like, oh, that's great. I now put a face 
And he is the most technical of the helps that I use for Matthew. And I, I've, I've got to tell you, I was so pleasantly surprised he was a good speaker because I thought whoever's been writing this material has to be so brilliant and technical, they would never be a good speaker. And lo and behold, he was good. He was one of the better ones. But I don't worship him. <laughs> Listen to what Carson writes. Jesus so far outstrips him that when Moses is put next to him, men must listen to Jesus. As Moses himself said, that's Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 to 18. Let me say it again. Jesus so far outstrips him that when Moses is put next to him, men must listen to Jesus. As Moses himself said, the climax of biblical revelation is Jesus. The climax, all the law and all the prophets, all they've ever been pointing to is the Lord Jesus Christ. The focus has always been on the Lord Jesus Christ. He continues, even Moses and Elijah assume supporting roles where he is concerned. God the Father says, this is my son whom I love. Hear, listen to him. I believe, listen, can I ask you grace for you? Do you ever go out of your way? I was so pleased last Wednesday when we announced that we're finishing on how to study the Bible. We got like 40-some people show up for a how to study the Bible. And on a Friday night, 40-some people, and then you, you say, Jeff, I couldn't be here. My schedule wouldn't allow. Praise the Lord. You go online, get with Brandon, and get that, that ability. I want to strongly encourage you. Go back and watch that, even if you have to break it up. Forty-some people are like, yeah, I want to go and get up there about 6.30 or 6.45 and stay till 1.15 in the morning. Those of you here, I had no clue. The time flew by for me. It was just like, really? And it was gone. It did not seem like six and a half, seven hours to me. Do you go out of your way? I'm going to skip the last part of my message today. I'm not going to hit the third point for time's sake. Do you go out of your way when... We studied the words of Christ to really be intent, really pay attention. Do you get up in the morning and look at the words of Christ? Do you, do you think about what he has to say in the night? Do you pay attention? Do you heed it? That's what the Lord is calling for. Even in the sections where you may say, that's just not the most interesting thing. Pay attention. Give heed. Obey. Believe. The Lord, the Father's trying to tell these three men. He's just told you back in chapter 16. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. He must be killed. And he must rise again from the dead on the third day. Believe him. Listen to him. Take what he's saying into account. Did it work? Did what the Father said work? Look at 6 through 8. And really, I'm not going to touch 7 and 8. Let's just finish here with verse 6 this morning. We'll not hit the third point. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Let me give you a hint. When you don't see or hear what someone else sees or hears, their reaction often is a great clue. When you don't see or hear what someone else saw and heard, sometimes just their reaction is a great clue. You should go home today and say, man, Jeff said it in the opening. He said it like twice during his message. 
and I heard somebody else talk about it, somebody else talk about it, I probably need to go out and check out this secret church thing. If you didn't see it or hear it, you need to at least go check it out. You may say, I don't, I don't agree with all of that. You need to at least expose yourself to it. Years ago, I used to coach, ba- uh, coach basketball, but I was also the PE coach. And we would do pickup games of basketball. And I learned when I couldn't see if the person swiping at the ball hit the ball or hit the arm, I learned that even if I couldn't see, even their downward motion, I couldn't quite hear the contact, was it ball or skin, I learned this, if the ball goes down, I'm not going to call a foul because they probably hit the ball. But I've learned if they swing and the ball goes up, that means they probably hit the person and I'll call a foul. Or if one person looks like, like that, you called a foul. You committed a foul. That's a foul, right? Look, you know, watch for people's reaction. Jeff, what's your point? Look at verse 6 one more time. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. They see Jesus transfigured. They see Moses and Elijah. They experience this cloud. But when they heard the voice of God, that's what terrified them the most, and they went down on their face. Grace, if you listen. This reminds me of Exodus chapter 20. Moses had just come down from the mountain, and he's given them the Ten Commandments. Do you remember what Israel said? Moses, we need you to speak to us the words of God. We can't handle the voice of God. You need to go back up there, and you need to let God speak to you. Sorry, you're in the middle, buddy. You need to let God speak to you. This is terrifying. We can't handle God speaking to us. Guys, when you're reading your Bible, please pay attention. You won't find a better person than Job. But when Job is encountered, you think Job has a great case. Man, he's got a really raw deal. When Job is encountered by God, he just goes down in humility. He goes downward. Moses encounters God. He goes downward in humility. Again, literally, face down. Isaiah encounters the presence of God, and he says, Woe is me. I'm deserving of judgment. I'm a man of unclean lips, dwelling in the midst of people of unclean lips. That's a clue to me. When you find Daniel after this vision of the beast, he too encounters God. He has this deep humility. People today hear the voice of God and act like it's no big deal. Easy come, easy go. Write this down at your last note. In light of their terror, that's a clue to me in verse 6. In light of their terror, we must be careful in how we respond to God's voice when he speaks. Say, Jeff, if I ever hear the voice of God, I'll be sure to respond properly. But I've not heard him speak. Uh Uh-oh. In light of verse number 6, we must be careful in how we respond to God's voice when he speaks through his written word. And through his Holy Spirit, through his Holy Spirit prompting us, how do you respond? They were terrified. They were absolutely terrified. How do you receive God's written word? How do you receive the inward prompting? I have not typed this and I haven't thought it out. Can I just finish with this thought? If you're spending regular private time in the word of God, the written word, You should expect to experience the inward prompting of the Holy Spirit. If you're really spending private time in the Word, and you don't ever experience inward prompting by the abiding Holy Spirit, something's wrong. You should be experiencing that. But on the converse side, listen, 
If you're going through life saying, God told me this, and I feel like God's leading me that, and God, again, told me and led me, but you're never spending private time in the Word of God, you don't need to put a lot of trust in what you think is God talking to you. I've heard people say, God told me, and they're out living in sin that goes directly against the revealed written Word of God. So I know that's not God told you to do. I literally have heard this. Happens a lot in relationships, a lot in the sexual relationship. Well, I was in this, and God told me. No, God didn't because his word says the opposite of that. What should happen, there should be a blending of the two. If I'm really in the word here, the written word, and I know God's speaking here, I should expect, don't lessen this one. Christians, learn what the Holy Spirit sounds like. When he starts saying, go talk to that person. Now, that's me. That's not God. When God says, give to that Give that much to that. No. I think that's me. I think that's them talking me into it. I'm being pressured. Like, Don't ever be pressured. Learn what the Holy Spirit, if you're in the Word, the Holy Spirit's going to prompt you. Talk to them. Don't talk to them. Stop talking. You're talking too much. Jeff, it's 1221. Wrap the service up. They're ready to go home. They've had an emotional day already. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Just before I pray this morning, can we just rest in the following things? Let's just do this. Very different. I'm just going to hit these, and we're just going to pray and be dismissed. Please continue to pray for the chambers. But I literally have as a takeaway today. Is this not a takeaway? God is sovereign. God is totally sovereign. He says that Elijah is coming and Elijah has come. We didn't get to study that, but here's what that tells me. Everything's working on a plan. Jesus says they killed John the Baptist and they're going to kill me too. Everything's working on a plan. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. Let this settle deep in your soul. Nothing, (laughs) nothing is haphazard with God. Nothing is haphazard with God. He has a preordained plan and things are on schedule. Is this not a clear takeaway? Christian, the Lord wants us to take more time in stillness and contemplation and worship and adoration and wonder. Is that part of your regular day? You say, Jeff, I've got a lot to do. I'm out serving the Lord. We've got to reach three billion people. Hey, you were here Friday night. Maybe the Lord started laying on your heart. Jeff, uh, I don't think I'm supposed to keep coming to Graceview. I'm supposed to go to these 3 billion people, these 7,000 groups of people that are unreached. Praise the Lord. You go and we'll support you and we'll send you. But make sure you never stop having times of stillness and silence and contemplation. That's the fuel. The Lord wants worshipers. God seeks worshipers. Just before we pray, can we take this away this morning? Jesus is a man, but he's so much more. He has the very nature of God. He is the very radiant. He is the radiating glory of God. The glory of God is seen in Jesus. You want to see the glory of God? Look at Jesus. Jesus just pulled back the veil just for a moment, and they were terrified. 
Here's the takeaway. God puts his son above all other people. Don't ever put anyone in the category of the Lord Jesus Christ. The father demands that we listen to his son. And just before I pray, here's my final thought, because this keeps taking me back to Friday, to my brother and sister that are here this morning that we get to have lunch with. These disciples were told as they saw such a marvelous sight and heard the very voice of God, they were told, don't say anything. And they came off the mountain, according to the book of Mark and Luke, and they kept the matter to themselves. You, though, my friend, are not told to be silent. We have been told to go tell of our experience and go tell of what we know about Jesus, the Son of God, being the Christ. He's the only Savior of the world. There is no other way given among men whereby we must be saved. There is only the way of faith in Jesus. And you and I may be living or spending time with someone who's never heard a clear presentation of the gospel. We need to reach the nations. But God wants us to speak to people in our path this week. No one above Christ. Listen to his son. Tell people, obey the son's command to go. And let it be fueled by worship. Father, thank you for this congregation. Lord, Father, I'm a bit relieved, to be honest with you, that my portion is over. Lord, I put it in your hands where it's been the whole time. God, would you just take this passage burn it deep within us. Lord, I thank you for using last week's text in James 1 multiple times. I pray that you'll keep doing that in me and our congregation. We talk too much and we don't talk enough. Lord, let us be on point. Let us be worshipers and let us be zealous doers of the word. Let us keep Christ first and foremost and above all others. It's in his name we pray. Amen.